Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have spoken to us in your word, that you have given us your promises. And we pray, oh God, that you would enable us to be a believing people who receive and build our lives upon the rock of your promises and your faithfulness to us. God, and we pray that you would use this evening, that you would use this series to that end to further root our hearts in your promises and in your word to us, and that you would form and mold and shape us to be a people of hope in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So beginning today and throughout Advent, we are going to be engaged in a series together entitled, All is Calm. Now, of course, this phrase, uh, this title is taken from the most loved, the most well-known, the most popular of all Christmas songs, Silent Night, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Bright. You know, in 1935, uh, Bing Crosby recorded a version of that song, and it has become the fourth most, well, uh, most uh, I don't know, popular single of all time. And so this is an incredibly popular, and it's a very nostalgic hymn for me. You know, I can still remember every time I hear it, it draws up memories to me of standing around Grandma Thea's dining room table with all of my aunts and uncles and cousins on Christmas Eve, and we would light a candle, and she had the birthday cake there. First, we'd sing happy birthday to baby Jesus. She did that for all the grandkids. And then, um, and then we would sing together Silent Night as we lit the candles. And so it's a very nostalgic, very popular, uh, very loved hymn. And yet it's also a very ironic hymn because the original Christmas night was anything but calm and silent. I mean, to start with, I've been at four childbirths and I know from firsthand experience that it is anything but silent and calm. <laughs> and of course, Mary and Joseph had to go from their hometown in Nazareth and walk a hundred miles across a barren, dangerous desert while Mary is pregnant in order to go down to, to Joseph's ancestral birth home in Bethlehem. Why? Well, it wasn't by choice. It was because the imperial power of the day required that they get down there in order for Caesar to count all of his tax base so that he can extract more money from hard-working people like Joseph in order to fund the military that oppressed the people of Israel. And so it was not a calm world that Jesus was born into. You know, the, the ancient world was violent, it was hard, uh, there were famines, there were pandemics, and of course, there was a lot of social unrest in Judea during the time of Christ, and so this was a very volatile, it was anything but calm. And yet, it's interesting because when you read through the, the, the original account of Christmas given to us in the biographies of Jesus, you know the most frequent and the most persistent command woven in throughout the stories of Christmas is a command to not be afraid, to not be unsettled, to not be anxious by all of the worrying things in the world around us that upset our calm. And I thought that given where we are at right now in this cultural moment, where we are inhabiting a year 2020 is anything but calm. Can I get a witness? Amen. And yet in the midst of this world, 
the news of Christmas comes to us as a word that is meant to break the hold of fear in our life and to calm our anxiety and actually to produce calm within us. Now, how does it do that? How does the news of Christmas break the grip of fear in our hearts and lives and release us from anxiety? And that's a question that we are going to explore beginning today and throughout the next few weeks together. And we're going to be looking at four different stories where that command, do not be afraid, arises within the Christmas story. And uh, it comes to Joseph, do not be afraid. It comes to Mary, do not be afraid. Uh, It comes to us right now in spite of all the fire engines, do not be afraid. That was on cue, by the way. I asked them to drive by just at that moment. Uh, Actually, if you're watching online, that's a soundtrack that's coming through right now just to further make us feel a little bit more anxious and afraid. What's happening out there right now? But you know, throughout the Christmas story to Joseph, to Mary, to the shepherds comes that command, do not be afraid. So we're going to explore each one of those stories and we're going to see how the news of Christmas roots our hearts in a stability that can break the stranglehold of fear and anxiety. But we're going to begin our series tonight by looking not at one of these familiar characters in the Christmas story. We're going to be looking at a character that almost none of you probably knows is in the Christmas story. And it's a man by the name of Zachariah. You know, it's interesting. uh, The story of Christmas opens not with the story of Mary and Joseph, but with the story of another couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the parents of John the Baptist. Because as Jesus, the Savior of the world, is going to be born, another one is going to be born, John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner of the Savior of the world. And so we're going to look together at the story of his parents, and particularly his father, Zechariah, tonight. And we're going to see in here, I think, something that enables us to find peace and calm amidst everything that makes for anxiety and fear in our culture and world right now. Zechariah's story begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It goes like this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiha. In case you are wondering which division he was in, he was in Abiha's division. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so this is a godly, upright couple. Zechariah is a successful man. He's a priest. But yet there's a problem because it says that Elizabeth was barren. Look what it says in verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. In the ancient world, barrenness was a great social problem, a great social shame. It was an honor-shame culture. If you couldn't have a child, it would bring shame upon you and your spouse and your family. If a wife could not get pregnant, the husband would have legal grounds within the Jewish world to divorce her. And it was also a financial problem because, you know, Caesar and Herod did not provide social security and Medicare. There was no Caesar care. Your kids were your social security and your Medicare in the ancient world. And so there was a nagging anxiety and worry that you lived with if you didn't have kids. Namely, who is going to provide for us financially when we get old? And it was also a spiritual issue. 
You know, God's blessing all throughout the Old Testament is constantly associated with fertility and the ability to have children. It is God's blessing that ultimately results in the people of God being fruitful and multiplying and filling the world. And so if you did not, if you were not able to have children, it raised questions. Do you not live under the blessing and the smile of God? Is God upset with you? Is he frowning on you? And so Elizabeth and Zechariah were beset with these terrible, this terrible situation, and they constantly were praying, God, how long, God, give us a child. But then they grew older and older, and the hopes died, and they thought, we're never going to have a baby. But it's interesting because it also says that they were righteous in the eyes of God, which meant that it, they were a part of the people of Israel who were waiting for God to act again in faithfulness to his promises to Israel. You know, one of the metaphors of Israel in exile throughout the Old Testament is barrenness. Uh, it, they had no hope and no future. They were stuck without power to bring life and vitality for themselves, and so the Elizabeth and Zechariah were not only praying for barren Elizabeth, they would also pray for barren Israel that God would act on behalf of both Israel and Elizabeth again. And the story continues. Look what happens next. It says in verse 8, Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so here where it picks up kind of like their story, uh, it's, it's Zechariah's turn as a priest to go burn incense in the temple. So there were about 18,000 priests in ancient Israel. They were divided into 24 subgroups. And each one of the subgroups would take a turn twice a year to serve at the temple. At any given time, there would be about 500 of them serving in the temple. Did you get all that math? And a special subgroup uh, among the 500 would be chosen by lottery, and a lot would fall upon them. And that special group, that select group, would be allowed to go into the holy place and burn incense. And the incense that would be burned in the holy place would represent the prayers arising to God. And so if you got selected, if you were one of the 14 who were selected out of the 500, only twice a year when you went, it was like you won the golden ticket. You were in and you were excited. And here's Zechariah, he gets chosen, he gets to go burn incense, uh, indicating the prayers of the people were being heard by God. And then as he goes in to burn the incense, it happens. This moment that would change Zechariah's life forever. Verse 11, and there appeared to him in the temple an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah as he's burning incense. Gabriel, now, he only shows up in history-making, epoch-turning events in biblical history. And here he shows up while Zechariah is burning incense. And Gabriel, he's not like Michael Landon. You remember You know, Zechariah's not in there getting touched by an angel. You know, 
And uh, this angel, he is not like one of those pasty, white, little, fat babies with golden wings, you know, kind of tame little things. This is a warrior of light. And every time in the biblical stories, when somebody encounters an angel, the response is the same every time they're struck with terror and fear. And so Gabriel replies with the first line that you were taught in angel training school. He replies to Zechariah, do not be afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Gabriel says, look, your son is going to be the messenger who would come before the Messiah to prepare the way. You know, the very last verse in the Old Testament, it promises that one like Elijah would come before Messiah to prepare the way. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, your barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to get pregnant and that son is going to be the one who is going to prepare the way. Now look at Zechariah's response. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. You know, Gabriel, I don't know if you've noticed this, but my wife and I, we are quite old. We are well, 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 well belong, you know, those fertile age of uh, childbearing years. And I love Gabriel's response. Look at what it says. Gabriel looks at him. And he says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept on making signs to them, but he remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went home. Verse 24, and after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among the people. You know, it, it's, it's Elizabeth in this moment has hit the jackpot. You know, she's like, I am going to have a kid. I've been waiting for this for decades. I'm going to have a kid. And as a cherry on top of the cake, my husband is going to be silent for nine months. <laughs> you know, I will never have to say, honey, will you just shut up and listen? That's all he can do for nine months. And the story ends. You know, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a strong response to Zechariah. He hears this news. 
I mean, what is he supposed to respond with? But doubt and skepticism and unbelief in the face of this incomprehensible, incredible promise. Zechariah is struck mute. Why? I mean, it's kind of harsh, isn't it? It's a harsh response of punishment upon poor Zechariah. Listen, Zechariah was a priest, and he knew the Bible. He knew that all of Israel's mothers at some point wrestled with barrenness. Sarah was barren, and Rebekah was barren, and Rachel was barren, and Hannah was barren. Barrenness, a dead womb, is no barrier for the life-giving power of the true and living God. This is a God who brings life from the dead, who speaks into a, to a, a tomb with a dead body, and Christ rises from the dead and walks out of the tomb. And so, but, but, but here in this moment, Zechariah is smitten with a problem that I think all of us find ourselves struggling with. It is the problem of unbelief. And you know, I, I, I do believe that underneath a whole lot of our fear and our anxiety, that many of us find ourselves wrestling with, some of us at an acute level, some of us at a low grade all the time level. I think if you scratch below a whole lot of our fear and our anxiety, what you will discover is the same unbelief that we see in the heart of Zechariah in this story. What you will find is a failure to trust in the good and in the powerful promises of God. You know, it's understandable in many respects because Zechariah, you know, he had the realities on the ground, right? There was his barren wife. She was old, advanced in years. And very often, isn't it the case that the realities on the ground are much more controlling and dominant to us than the promise of God? I mean, isn't it the realities on the ground that so much control and dominate and dictate your own emotional state? how you feel, how you experience life. It's not the promises of God, it's the realities on the ground. And here, this problem of unbelief, this failure to trust in the promise of God is exposed and it's called out. And, and, and listen, I think what's interesting about Zechariah is Zechariah was a priest. And so he's a religious guy. You know, very often in our world, we, you know, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we divide people up into believers and unbelievers. But it's interesting that in our story, it is the believer that is struggling with unbelief. And he's not the first, he's not the last believer that has struggled with unbelief. I think a lot of us struggle to trust, we struggle to believe, we wrestle with doubt and our own skepticism. And I think if you do scratch below a whole lot of our fears and our anxieties, there you will find unbelief. Now, don't misunderstand me. I know that fear and anxiety, it can be crippling for many of us, and it's complicated. Uh, fears, anxieties, on one level, I mean, for some of you, uh, this isn't something that makes you less spiritual than other people. It's just you have a, a different genetic makeup than other people. Maybe you've got a different history. And so you struggle to greater degrees with other people than with, with anxiety and fears. And of course, fear can be a good thing because, you know, fear can cause you to make decisions that get you out of harm's way. 
You know, very often when you're scared, I mean, it's a built-in good mechanism that we have. Fear can cause us to set precautionary measures. Uh, Sometimes anxiety can cause us to work harder. You know, typically when I'm feeling anxious about an upcoming sermon, the closer the sermon gets, a little bit more anxiety creeps in. And you know what I start to do? I start to work a little bit harder, a little bit more clear thinking, a little bit more like, got to get this thing done. And of course, fear and anxiety, it it can be genetic, it can be, you know, part of our background, It, it, it can be good, it can be good and healthy. But you know, a whole lot of our fear and anxiety, it can actually be crippling. It can control you. It can actually make you more controlling of other people. You know, and, and I think that Yoda was onto something, you know, in the Star Wars movies when he said that fear leads to the dark side. And very often it's, it's fears that the world is out of control, that uh, where our nation is going feels like it's out of your control. And all of a sudden, you start to look for things you can control, people you can control, events you can control, and you can actually start to sabotage yourself by your efforts to control other people. Now, again, I'm not not trying to set at odds our work of trying to manage things that we can manage and control what we can control to create kind of safety around us. I mean, sometimes, again, that's a good, healthy response to our own fears and anxieties. But what I'm trying to say is this, you know, very often, and and it is often, often the case that what we are actually building our own ultimate security on is our own ability to manage and control and protect ourselves. And I think the reason why we get struck through with so much fear and anxiety in the midst of times maybe when an election doesn't go your way or a global pandemic doesn't go your way or when an earthquake hits or any number of things that you just can't control. I mean, has anybody else felt like in 2020, you are not nearly as as much in control as you thought you were? And it's not a bad realization. Because there's actually very little in this world that you can control. You, you, cannot, you can't control the movement of the earth. You can't control the decisions of your 18-year-old children. You can't control your parents. You know, there is very little we can control. And so at the end of the day, if we are going to rest our own security and our own You know, if we're going to find rest from our anxious and our fearful hearts, if we're going to rest it on anything, we have to rest it on the power and the promise of God. God has promised to us that he is for us and is not against us. And it's this promise that we can build our life on and we can root our hope in and that we can find as a ballast in the midst of very, very troubled waters we find ourselves in. And so in our story, we see Zechariah, and he's wrestling with doubts. He's wrestling with unbelief. It's something I think all of us can relate to. But I want you to see in our story that he doesn't stay there. He moves from this place of unbelief and mistrust to a place of belief and confidence and trust. And his trust actually eventually erupts in song and in worship and in praise. Look at, look at what happens next in the story. If you turn over to Luke chapter 1, verse 57, 
And where we pick up the story, now Zachariah and Elizabeth are now in the maternity ward. Actually, they're not in the maternity ward at the local hospital because they were having a home birth. They were grunge and hippie before it was cool to be grunge and hippie, to have home births. But um, they're at home, and notice what it says, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And get this, they would have called him Zachariah after his father. Why would they have named the son after his father? Well, that's what everyone did. It was tradition. It was tradition. (laughs) Tradition. Yeah, you know, it was tradition. It was just what they did. It was what everyone did. It was the cultural norm. But here he goes outside of the cultural norm, and instead he says, no, he shall be called John. And they said to him, but none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing on a tablet. And he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Listen, the reason why Zechariah names his his son John, it's not, he's not trying to be unique. He's not trying to have a unique name for his child. He names him John as an act of faith. Because he now believes. And when you move from unbelief to belief, it will lead you at times to go outside of cultural norms and practices and traditions and take a countercultural route to act in faith. It might cause you to do things like open up your home and and extend hospitality even when it costs you something and give more and more of your resources and your money away because you're actually trusting God with what you have. It will open you to take risks and to uh, give yourself away for the sake of others. But it not just leads him to name his son differently, it, it eventually interrupts in praise and thanksgiving, which is ultimately where trust and hope in God will lead you. It leads you to a place of joy and gratitude and worship. And look at what he does in verse 68. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he says to John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so Zechariah moves from this place of unbelief and a wavering faith to a confident, worshiping faith that results in action that is countercultural and results in praise and thanksgiving to God. But here's what I want you to notice. 
the kind of faith that actually will quell your anxieties and that will be a ballast in the midst of the storm that we find ourselves in in 2020 is not a vague general faith. It is a specific faith in the specific promises of God that are given to us in Scripture surrounding Jesus Christ. Listen, our faith, our trust is not that everything in our life is always going to turn out good. You know, sometimes life is painful and difficult. Sometimes uh, you've got a parent with an alcohol addiction that makes them a mean drunk. Sometimes you've got a child with a drug addiction. Sometimes, sometimes the marriage falls apart and she files for divorce. You know, you know some, sometimes you wrestle with this, in, in, this crippling depression. You know, sometimes life can be very, very hard and it can be very, very difficult. And the promise is not that God will remove difficulties and challenges from our life. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will suffer tribulation. And the Apostle Paul said that through many trials, we must enter into the kingdom of, of God. And James says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you to, trust, to test you. And so the promise is not that our life is going to be free from afflictions and difficulties and pains. Here's the promise that we can bank our life on. Here is the promise that we can root our hearts in and find a ballast amongst all of the anxieties and fears. It is the promise that on the other side of the cross, of the suffering that we bear, ultimately will be resurrection. The promise is that the suffering of this present age is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The promise is that these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. The promise is that this old creation with all of its injustice and pain and darkness will one day yield to a new creation where there will be no more death or sorrow or pain, where God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes and he will speak that word over us, behold, I am making everything new. The promise is that even suffering, even when it's nonsensical and we can't make sense of it, can even still then be used by God for our, own glory, for our own good and for God's glory. And this promise that one day resurrection is coming actually became flesh and broke into the world on that first Christmas morning. The promises of God have been fulfilled as a yes and amen in Jesus Christ. They are not vague, they're not nondescript, they're not floating out there. These are promises that have become concrete and tangible and lived among us. And these are the promises that ultimately Zechariah came to trust in and believe. And this is the invitation for us is to move from a place of unbelief and mistrust to a place where we root our hope and we root our confidence in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. But the final thing I want you to note in the story is this, is that the journey of Zechariah from unbelief to belief, this journey that he took from doubting the promise of God, from the word of God, to a place where he actually was building his life on the promises of God, this, 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 this journey 
from uncertainty to certainty involved a divinely imposed discipline of silence. Did you notice that in the text? His journey from unbelief to belief involved a divinely imposed discipline of silence. He was brought mute for nine months. Now, I was asking myself the question, why? Now, I'm a pastor, and so it didn't take me long to come up with an answer. No doubt because he was a religious professional. He was a priest. He taught the people. It was probably because Zachariah loved to talk. And maybe even Zechariah loved to hear himself talk. And maybe he liked to talk about God and faith, even though when push came to shove and it got below the surface, he himself didn't have a lot of confidence and faith in his own heart. And maybe, and maybe just maybe, maybe I'm just going out on a limb here, but maybe Zechariah also liked to pontificate. Uh, with all of his uh, fellow, you know, priests and rabbis around him in Jerusalem. Maybe they like to pontificate about everything that was wrong with the Roman government. Maybe they even like to get on social media and go onto Facebook and Instagram. Maybe, I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe they, they just, maybe Zachariah just liked to talk and talk and talk. But maybe the key for him to actually grow in genuine, deep faith, he needed to shut up and be silent and to actually take space instead to reflect and to think and to pray and to notice. To notice what? To notice that in the womb of his wife, Elizabeth, a new life was, born, was growing. At first, it was imperceptible, but then as time came, he began to see more and more evidence of it. Maybe the silence was there so that he could notice the work of God's new creation that was breaking in right in the middle of the old creation. Maybe it was to create space to be quiet before the face of God because often when we're talking a lot, and I know this from experience, you have a difficult time listening. You know, this Advent, I want to invite you to take space. And I, I don't think that God is going to impose upon any of us a discipline of silence. Though if he does, we'll have guest preachers for the rest of Advent. <laughs> if I turn out to be mute, some of you are praying for that. Shame on you, Robert. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but listen, you know, Advent is a space that the church has given to us for greater reflection, for greater thought, for greater prayer to actually be silent before the face of God, to consider the wonder and the mystery of God's new creation in Christ breaking in the middle of this old creation. For this new kingdom that is eternal, that is stable, that it will never be shaken, breaking into the kingdoms of man. Maybe during Advent, the call upon each of us is to silent the cacophony of voices around us that constantly are evoking fears in us. To stop joining our own voice to that and expressing all of our own opinions that are right, 
or at least mine are. And actually be quiet before the face of God and to take more, more time to reflect and to pray and to consider what it means that the word became flesh to dwell among us, to ultimately drive out the darkness and to make everything new. And I'll just close with this. You know, not everything depends upon the faith of Zechariah. You know, even though for the bulk of our time, we have been talking together about the necessity of our own faith and trust. Make no mistake about it, the fulfillment of God's promise is not dependent upon your shaky, uncertain, unstable, skeptical faith. God will be faithful to God's promises because of God's own self. And God has been faithful in Jesus Christ to do just that. You know, when uh, our first... Um, when, when, when Alicia became pregnant with our first daughter, Audrey, I can remember the, the very first time learning that Alicia was pregnant. And I remember just the, the, the news, I'm pregnant, it being met with absolute unbelief. Like, no, no, you're not. Like, you look the same. Everything, like, there's no, there's a human being inside of you. That can't be. Our lives are going to be forever changed. No, you just, you look the same. Everything looks the same. And yet, you know, in spite of my initial skepticism, that baby continued to grow, didn't she? And she ultimately was brought into the world, my beautiful oldest child, Audrey. And you know, despite our initial skepticism and our unbelief, the promise of God continues to grow and be fulfilled. The kingdom of God has been growing like a little mustard seed throughout this world. And one day the curtain is gonna be, gonna be pulled back and Christ who came once will come again, and he will make everything new. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you, and we confess that we are a people who often struggles to believe. God, I would be the first to confess that the realities on the ground are oftentimes more strong and more real and more determinative for my emotional state than your promises. But I pray, oh God, that now and throughout this season that you might stimulate a greater faith and a greater hope in us, that we would be a people who live and act in countercultural ways in this world because of our hope in your future promise. And even so, we pray, Lord Jesus, that even as you have come once, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come again. Come, Lord Jesus, come and make everything new. And come even now to us in this place and in this time and meet with us and minister to us where we need your loving touch in our life. And we ask this in